you know, Stalin and the Nazis were these welfare state types. Uh, One of us is a stand-up comic. Can you tell who it is, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> Everyone, prick. Um. <laughs> but the problem. <laughs> Oh my god, that's like, I could use that to teach the whole arc. Do we have any kind of archaeological evidence, any kind of, any kind of other corroborating evidence? This is a geek history of time, where we take nerdery and relate it to the real... Ed, come back, come back, Ed, we miss you. Uh, something about, we bring nerdery into the real world. Um, I'm not Ed Blaylock, as you can see. I'm tongue-tied Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin teacher uh, who sometimes dabbles in world history. Uh, I'm also a father of two, one of whom just turned 10, and I bought him his very first Calvin and Hobbes to try to get him away from Garfield. Uh, and sitting across from me is, again, another special guest. Please introduce yourself, sir. I am Tim Watts, and I am a uh, past podcaster, also a sometime comic book creator, um, writer, artist, and uh, post-apocalyptic aficionado. I like it. Uh, and uh, we talked last time about your comic book. I'm going to let you plug that again at the end. Okay. Um, but I do want to ask, uh, what is the name of your podcast? Because I hear that these are still available for download. Um, I don't believe they are. I really? Think, um, yeah. Uh, the podcast was several, it ended probably five years ago, four or uh, five years ago. Okay. Um, because it ran its course. Okay. And then just uh, through a sequence of events, the the uh, server that was hosting it, I think the other people were in charge of paying the upkeep for that. Ah. Uh, and that stopped, so I do gotcha. not believe it's available anymore. It was, oh, it was called Post-Apodeclipse. Okay. Well, y'all can try to find it. Yeah, you might be able to find it. I don't know if, if some places may still have it. I, I don't have control over that. Sure. So, but uh, yeah, we talked about all kinds of post-apocalyptic goodness, and nice. uh, yeah, so that's cool. And well, as we talked about last episode, some yeah. some similar themes. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of which, now we're going to talk about the movie of V for Vendetta. Uh, so last time we talked about the comic book, and I, I brought everybody up to speed about the text and the print of V for Vendetta, which is totally overblown in the 1980s, but it's totally not overblown now. The movie itself is also kind of totally overblown in the in the early 2000s, and yet it totally wasn't, and it certainly isn't now. Uh, again, it's a long title, but we're, we're workshopping it. <laughs> um, now, the, the history of the comic turning into a movie is actually a really sad one from the artist's perspective. Um, Alan Moore maintains that DC all but stole the rights to two of his favorite properties, V for Vendetta and Watchmen. And it was their treatment of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that soured him entirely. Uh, by the time V for Vendetta was in production, he'd specifically asked DC to take his name off of these properties. Uh, he's basically pissed and thinks he was duped. He says, quote, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was the reason why I decided to take my name off of all subsequent films. And, and then, why Sean Connery retired. Yes. <laughs> Although, frankly, Although, that man was out of touch by that point anyway. It, true. And yeah. to be honest, I thought League was kind of fun. Yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't what, take it seriously. I didn't I just, know what we were supposed to be looking for with League. There was no depth to it. It was just it spectacle. It was supposed to be. And from the point of spectacle, it was just fun. I mean, the comic itself didn't have much right. depth. Like, yeah. Maybe 20,000 Leagues, but that was about it. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> if you're lucky. Yeah. So, 
but yeah, uh, he also says, yeah, a lot of things which had to do with League made me decide I really wanted nothing to do with the American film industry in any shape or form, which is why I asked DC if I could possibly have my name taken off the films and the money redistributed. So he did put his money where his mouth was. Yep. This went fine with the Constantine film. This was because my name was never going to go on the Constantine film in the first place. Because that had gone so well, I distributed the money amongst the other artists. My name uh, hadn't been on the film, and I was completely happy. And Constantine was an original creation of his? I guess so. I, I, was I wasn't aware of that. that. I, I know. I didn't think that he did. Okay. Yeah. I assumed when DC then sent me paperwork so I could sign my money over to David Lloyd on the V for Vendetta film that this was going to go fine. David Lloyd is the artist who did the drawings. It didn't. I had an American producer actually lying about my involvement in the film, which made me look like a liar. When I said I'm not taking any money from these films and I'm not interested in them, he makes a statement that's completely dishonest and was saying the complete opposite. So I felt I had at that point to exercise my right to completely sever my tie, myself from DC Comics if, assuming they weren't able to just get a simple retraction, nothing humiliating, just a simple retraction, apology, and clarification that would have said we regret that due to a misunderstanding, blah, 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 that all would have been all. DC told me they were really trying hard to get that. I kind of got the idea that, in fact, they probably they were just hoping that if they stalled for long enough, it would all blow over and there wouldn't be anything I was able to do about it. So essentially, they're going to say, hey, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. Take it down to the keep road. Using the name. Yeah. Uh, about a few weeks, or I'm sorry, after a few weeks, it turned out that they hadn't been trying to get any apology or retraction, or at least not very hard. They certainly weren't able to offer one that was anything like what I'd asked for. At this point, I said that it's. Uh, I said that's it. I'm not working for DC again, and also I still want my name off this film. If they don't take my name off this film, I will be taking my name off the books because it means that much to me to sever my connection with this whole painful process or business. The way that I've left it is this, or the way I've left it is all right. DC can take my name off of V for Vendetta and stop paying me the money. And if that doesn't happen, take my name off all the books and stop paying me the money. So no telling where this could run to. I mean, believe me, I would be completely happy if my name came off everything I do not own. I'm not expecting DC Comics to be shamed by my asking to have my name taken off the work. I don't think anyone's going to be shamed. Wow. Yeah, he's pissed. Yeah, that, well, I get the impression that there's not a lot of middle ground with him. No. You know, no. it kind of reminds me of uh, the Ditko character, Mr. A, I think it was. Um, it was a character that Steve Ditko created that mm-hmm. saw things in a very black and white manner. And he created him back in the 70s, I oh, think, okay. 60s, 70s. a Marvel character? Um, no, I think it was um, just his character. Oh, okay. Um, and I, I don't know a lot about him, but I, I get the impression that... that uh, Alan Moore may like him. Yeah. Because he's very arbitrary in his worldview. Okay. Which I get the impression that... Uh, I don't think Alan Moore is arbitrary. I do think he's rigid. Okay. Better better word to use. Yeah. Better word to use. Yeah. He's, he, he clearly came to it honestly. Oh, yeah. yeah Instead yeah. of like, was a, there uh, was this pro- from now on. Yeah, there was a process. No, he yeah. wasn't two-faced. He didn't flip a yeah. coin. Yeah. 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 But yeah, it was thought out, but staunchly <laughs> adhered to. Yeah. 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 Uh, so... Ed, being a Catholic, would appreciate that. <laughs> so, V for Vendetta was acquired by DC and had a number of pressings since the mid-1980s. Is it called a pressing? I... Uh, printings sure. is what they, in comics. Pressings so, for records, I believe. Right, yeah. yeah. 
So by 2006, they'd sold over 500,000 copies. The Wachowskis were interested since the mid-1990s, and after The Matrix blew up, they had the capital to get their way. Uh, Warner Brothers optioned the movie, and the Wachowski siblings modernized the script, Americanizing it. Moore didn't like that either. Oh, no. I did. Because to me, if you're optioning a piece of art, you have the option to, when you change the medium, you get to change it. And I think, I think his, here's why I liked it. His book was perfect for its time. Making a movie that's perfect for that time makes no goddamn sense to me. I understand that, but, and I'll retread some of the stuff that we talked about last episode since we talked about the film a little bit. What, and what I learned from the last episode is mm-hmm. how much they diverge from the source material. Yes. And how I, now that I know more of what, and we'll go back to creator and intent, mm-hmm. now that I know more of what the intent of the piece was when mm-hmm. it was originally written, I have no problem with modernizing it. Mm-hmm. I, and I also understand when you move from one medium to another, sacrifices have to be made. Yes. For storytelling purposes and of various course. other reasons. But I think the choices they made mm-hmm. diluted the impact of it because before mm-hmm. it was very clearly fascism okay. in the comic yeah. and as I said last um, episode it's much more generic it's much more the- theocracy yeah. Yeah, in yeah, my yeah. opinion yeah, you're because right. they leaned hard into faith yep. and they focused as as the you know the the class that they want to persecute is primarily homosexuals and which Muslims. Get, and Muslims yeah. which gets very much into a Christianity point of view absolutely so they didn't get into minorities and other things like that that yeah. wasn't something that was dealt with in the film true so and again I totally understand I'm not super, sure sure you know when I sell my comic yeah um, I'm perfectly fine with changes being made because I understand that you. You you, you got to match the market too. Just, just like if you make a comic book of a prose novel, you you have to make changes. Absolutely, you know. So I get that. I just think that um, the comic, as you explained it last episode, is much mm-hmm. richer in what the ground it covered. Yes, and had and, and and had much more depth, which is usually the case for a, a written, even a graphic novel. I would say it's yeah, also the film. it's the case for the first aspect of that media uh, of whatever medium it's in. It's the it's the case for the first aspect of that piece. So if it if you be, took a novelization of a film them, and you would make a novelization, I, you have the yeah. opportunity to expand. I don't on think that. it's as rich though. I I think whatever the first of it is, I think it could be. It could be. Could be. I think it's Very, yeah. But, I, you're right because episode three of Star Wars, uh, the the novel of it. Is so good. Oh, is it? It yeah. really is. And so, whereas, by the nature of the medium, mm-hmm. you know, a film runs anywhere from 100 to 120 pages of a script. True. You know, you this physically can't put in everything unless you make a 16-hour series like Lord of the Rings. Right. And, and, and I would argue, you still don't have everything in those. No, God, so many fans are pissed that Bombadil's not in there. Right, and... Yeah. You know, what do you do? Do you make an 18-hour movie? <laughs> well, if you're Peter Jackson, yes. Yeah. Um, well, but, or Amazon yeah. will spend $300 million to make the series. Right, right. Yeah. Or, you know, like The Shining, for instance. Mm-hmm. If you include the shit that's from the book, then you're confusing people. Like, what was that dog well, thing? You know, like, in right. the book, there's 30 pages right. explaining that the yeah. whole thing that got to that. Right. But choices, so, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. or, or, or yeah. making the Joker the one that killed Bruce Wayne's parents in the first movie, which oh. I hate. Yeah. You know, so it defeated the purpose of... 
senseless violence. Yep. Because the event didn't have to have a connection. Right. And that was the whole point. Right. But I understand they, they were they were talking down to the audience mm-hmm. that if this guy didn't come back around somehow, that the audience would be confused or something. Right. Which right. I I vacillate between yes, the movie going public is stupid, or give them some credit. I don't know where I where I land depends on the day. <laughs> sure. And I, I would say though, even just with that though, there was that wonderful line of you made me. But I, you no, know, that's I a made great you. line, and I love that little yeah. thing. But they didn't really explore that even. Like yeah. these guys existed so far away from each other right. that it was it was just a great line, and that was it. So right. I agree with you one hundred percent. So I think that the choices they made, while they may have been necessary, mm-hmm. lessened the the overall texture and depth of the of, mm-hmm. of the film versus the book. But I dare say, and and here's and and maybe because it's the thesis of what I'm coming to about this is that this, um, the fascism that's brought about in the in the movie and I would even say it doesn't even lean that hard on theocracy it's just the thing it leans hardest on it only mentions faith in print twice and then verbally like three times that's it it's much more of a generic miasma fascism and I kind of like that the generic brand of fascism because that makes it more of a universal thing which to me and I'm going to get to why I think that but to Alan Moore you're absolutely right. right. Uh, it was. It ceased to be about these extreme ideologies of anarchism and fascism, and and about England specifically, mm-hmm. and it became an American story that lacked the satirical content that he purposely explore, explored. Which goes to the the, the mm-hmm. homogeneous quality of, of Hollywood of yes. you know appealing to the lowest common denominator yeah. to yeah. for profitability. Yeah. yeah, but at the same time, like that, that fixed Star Wars, like. Uh, and I'm talking about the original trilogy. <laughs> um, but Moore stated that the story, quote, has been turned into a, Bru- a Bush-era parable by people too timid to set a political satire in their own country. It's a thwarted and frustrated and largely impotent American liberal fantasy of someone with American liberal values standing up against a state run by neoconservatives, which is not what the comic V for Vendetta was about. It was about fascism. It was about anarchy. It was about England. Now, again, again, here's where I disagree with him. Yes, he's right. The movie, despite being set in England, is not about England. Mm-hmm. It's not. No. And yes, he's right. It avoids all kinds of shit that's important. The racism, the white supremacy, the right. ethnostate bullshit of the ruling party's fascism. True. Hell, it leaves out the fascism. <laughs> but it alludes to it not very subtly. Oh, it absolutely does You've because got the, the, the iconography the black. is all over it. And that's the thing about a movie. Yeah. It's a visual medium. Right. You can get away with not saying, hi, right. we're fascists. Right. Because they're posed in front of black and they get it's the a, flags it's a and the red. says a thousand words. Exactly. Yeah. Which is interesting that a comic book guy is pissed that a visual well, medium. A comic book writer. Ah, uh, good point. Good point. He's not a visual storyteller. You got me. He, uh, he, understands the, he understands the medium. Don't get me wrong. Right. But his primary focus is the written word that's so interesting why if he's so written wordy well also he's historically has established himself to be very precious about his creations true that's true you know and someone else went in and stomped yeah. all over it and and walked around and, and made changes to it and yeah. I, I mean if somebody went in and changed everything about my book right it would probably upset me especially if they made choices that i thought sub- substantively like for example you know in my book, I have several prominent female characters. Mm-hmm. And if someone said, we're going to make a movie of it, and all the leads are white males. Right. And they're all 12-year-olds. That, that would bug yeah. me. Yeah, no, I get you. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I think precious is a good word. I said he's purity testy. But you're right. <laughs> he's, he's precious. And I think he runs into the same problem that a lot of my leftist friends run into, too. Uh, forgetting that the real enemy is fascism. And this is where you get into that wonderful scene on Monty Python, uh, Life of Brian. Judean People's Front, People's Front of Judea, <laughs> yeah. all that. They're tearing each other <laughs> apart, forgetting the Romans, right? the original fascists. Um, any chipping away at, at that fascism, no matter how timid, good. Good. And if it takes a very watered-down version of what he did to reach a mainstream audience, cool enough for me, man. Uh, plenty of people read the comic only after seeing the movie, oh, too. Mm -hmm. Me included. And since the comic is from two decades earlier, it had become a bit of a snapshot, as any art is, a relic of the 1980s in England. And that's not who needed to hear the message anymore. And I would also add that um, use, the analogy used before of the Ted Turner colorized thing is mm -hmm. just because this film was made, mm -hmm. his work didn't cease to exist. Right. People were still welcome to read it. And who knows, like you said, maybe the film drove somebody to read it that hadn't read it before. Yep. And they got the message that he was trying to communicate in the original novel. Yeah. That they would never have gotten had they not seen the film. Right. And, you know, I, as a lover of the Star Wars EU, they got rid of the entire EU. Right. I still have all the books in my bookshelf. Yeah. I read them anytime I want. Right. And... They have used elements of that in my beloved movies, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, they absolutely have. Now, David Lloyd, his co-creator for V for Vendetta, the guy who did all the drawings, uh, he liked it. He said, quote, it's a terrific film. The most extraordinary thing about it for me was seeing scenes that I'd worked on and crafted for maximum effect in the book translated to film with the same degree of care and effect. The transformation scene between Natalie Portman and Hugo Weaving is just great. If you happen to be one of those people who admires the original so much that changes to it will automatically turn you off, then you may dislike the film. But if you enjoyed the original and can accept an adaptation that is different to its source material but equally as powerful, then you'll be as impressed with it as I was. And that is a visual storyteller looking at a visual medium. I had never thought of that. And that blows my mind that I'd yep. missed even that simple distinction. Thank Be you for beca that. Because yep. he speaks that language right. of film, even though he's not a filmmaker, right. he better than works. Alan Moore does. Yep. That's really, wow. He, uh, like I said, he seems not to be stuck to the purity of the art, right. given the importance of the message, and right. given the evolution of the art. But I think it's 100% what you're saying, too. Now, that said, here's what Moore got right, okay? From the time that he wrote and published V for Vendetta and its resurgence with DC and with the movies, a lot of the world has changed. Alan Moore's warning against fascism and nuclear, seemed, uh, nuclear war seemed quaint by the early 2000s. Because, yeah, people had stopped being concerned about nuclear war. Right, yeah. right. Because I mean, the Soviet Union had fallen, Yep. you know, and you know, other, you know, other things, you know, rogue states had, had become the, war on the, terror. the vogue term. Yep. And, you know, ind individual or small group actions were more of a concern than any mm -hmm. large state. Yeah. Well, and the main oppressor wasn't a, well, it was what he had called out, a fascism with a pretty face, you know, a kind face, a good with a smile and a sharp suit. Um, because you do have the war on terror. You do have people being thrown into camps. Mm. Uh, and, and I think I'm going to get to that later, or I might be mixing up my, my episodes. <laughs> uh, it's kind of an, uh, <laughs> a theme for me. 
Um, he called out that an upcoming generation who would see V for Vendetta on screen, which he thoroughly disassociated himself from, said, quote, they think they're growing up under the threat of Islamic Jihad. They're in fact growing up under the threat of nuclear winter, just like we were. I don't know if I'd go down with that road with him. I wouldn't until 2016. I, I still, I still yeah. don't. No, I still don't. I I've think, got a bigger button, and it works better than Kim Jong Un's. Oh no, I, I understand. Yeah, I understand. But I think that as as frightening as the rhetoric is, mm-hmm. I think to a certain degree it is bravado and rhetoric. Um, I also think that the the withdrawal from Syria mm-hmm. gave me a window into there is a line. Mm. Whereas his own people will go, no, you fucked up. And I, I, and yeah. I don't now. I don't cling to that as as comforting that eventually sure. you know they'll, they'll draw a line. But it, it, interesting, there's okay. at least something there. Okay. I don't know if it will make it, but I'll ultimately, I think that the the idea of of going down, opening that door, mm-hmm. there's enough people that I would say if you had to be a betting man, I would lean, you know. Fifty percent plus on the someone intervening. Okay. Then not. Not that it couldn't happen. Absolutely. Right. Right. Happen. Right. Yeah. You said fifty percent plus. That's not. That's yeah. not. It's not going to happen. Here, I would. Here's why I would argue otherwise. Reagan himself offered a deal to Gorbachev in the eighties of total um, elimination of of nuclear weapons in exchange for certain things. The leaders, though their rhetoric was jumped up, were working furiously behind the scenes to ratchet it down. Mm-hmm. The time at which he was uh, writing his stuff, nuclear war was absolutely an existential threat, but it had become like it had become a a uh, a car a, a car alarm. Right. It, you it, hear it but you don't listen to it. It's been going on so long you ignore it. Yeah. But um also people were working at I mean you had salt one, salt two. You had strategic you had all these reductions in arms happening at that time. Whereas now, you, we don't quite know who's got what kinds of nuclear weapons, and now people don't have those back channels anymore. And right. so I would say that that's why, to me, it's more of a threat, even though we're not as aware of it. That, that's a possibility, yes. Yeah. But either way, I don't think he's that but far. Large-scale, large mm-hmm. 500 missiles both flying back and forth at each other, I think, is less likely. I think a, right. an isolated event yes. is more likely. yes. So I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you on that. I, I think it's much less, how to put this, it's much more likely that it's going to start like World War I did mm-hmm. than it will start like the Napoleonic War did. Right. Um, where I, I, or I could, you know, one leads it. to the other, leads to the other, oh right. shit, now we're all dead. Whereas before it was two giant states. It starts plus, at the top. Right. Yeah. Now it's... it's oh, I can, yeah. I can definitely see, you know... Push comes to shove, and Israel decides they want to be preemptive on something in Iran, mm-hmm. and you know, don't forget Pakistan. And then shit goes. Uh, and India. Oh my and God. India is getting more fashy by the day. India is is yeah. yeah yeah not to go too far afield, but yes yeah yeah. So and that's what I'm saying. Like a lot of people, and then don't forget right. you know Korea. Don't forget right. you know. Yeah, I was thinking so. more of, of a, a U.S. Soviet Union level large scale exchange, but you're right, smaller yeah. regional things. Yeah, that is a possibility. It's kick up a lot of dust. Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, he says, uh, and again, I don't think he's that far from the mark. He says, I was saying back in 1981 or whenever it was, I was setting this in the absurdity, absurdly far future period of 1997 where Britain would be run by a computer-centralized right-wing government. Now, that's a thing in the in the comic that was a thing. Like, the, the leader was in oh, love with and being told what to do by a computer. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, yeah, they took that. I think... They took that completely and they, out. And, and right to take it out. I don't yep. think it was germane to the, the message. Not at the time, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and to show what they were really nasty, that, that they... And to show what they were, a really nasty right-wing government... The easiest and quickest shorthand was to put monitor cameras on every street corner. In 1997, in England, I believe it first began in the town of Kings Lynn. They had a monitor camera saturation where you could track someone from one end of town to the other without them ever going off camera. Now, is that something that, at this point, I know that the UK is one of the most camera surveilled, surveilled countries in the world. That had to do with the Olympics. That was the, the big excuse. But was it ever really objected to by either side? No, and that's the they yeah. remember what I said last time about how England didn't suffer. Right, they just went with it, and when this was successful, they shipped it into every town in the British Isles. So yes, there are monitor cameras everywhere. It's fairly obvious. It's what I would do if I were going to start a fascist political state. So I assume it's what anyone would do. It's like terrorism. You were talking about people being more frightened of dying in a jihad. No offense, but that is perhaps more of an American perception than a global one. You have to remember that over here, there were teenagers being taken out of cellar bars in separate carrier bags all through the 70s and 80s because of the war in Northern Ireland, which in that case, the IRA were largely being supported by donations from America. It's true. Yeah, yeah. That was why I was a bit worried when George Bush said he was going to attack people who supported terrorism. I thought, oh my God, Chicago is going to be declared a rogue state and they're going to hunt down Teddy Kennedy and people like that. Uh, now I would say, see, overblown, 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 and yet I read Twitter. Right, but, but also Twitter is a microscopic section of the populace. It's where I can read what the president is saying. Well, <laughs> and that's what I'm talking about. Okay, I, I yeah, yeah, I thought you were talking about, you know, as a whole. No, I, give, I just follow comedians and right. the president. Yeah. Um, the movie departs strongly from the comic yeah. in that it generalizes fascism into a series of images, like we said. Mm-hmm. It mentioned Islam maybe twice and often in the same breath as queer folk. Mm-hmm. Nothing about white nationalism, nothing about hyper-militarism, and it doesn't have to. This is done by montage and or just ignored. Right, but they, they are very clear on the hyper-militarism just through images. Yep. They, you know, they, they don't talk about it, but it's right. everywhere. It's montage. It's yeah, like it's, the American Civil War has done blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean just the, the it's military presence in, yeah. in the UK, they're, they're yeah. everywhere. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. And I would point out that uh, the UK does have a tremendous surveillance system. Um, they also have a lot fewer shootings. Like, yeah. and that's that's you know he's afraid of fascism, and I'm I'm afraid of schools getting shot up. Mm, there's 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 some there's some room there for discussion. Yeah. Now the focus becomes in the movie becomes V. He becomes. Because it's an American movie, so we got to focus on the lone we have gunman. To, we have yeah. To ha- yeah, we have to have a... Or a, knifeman. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. It becomes his quest to right a wrong, to save England, and by extension, Western culture, from itself. Right. So he fights against the specific cruelties and hypocrisies of those in power in the movie and punishes them for their transgressions. He also tortures Evie in, into her existential choice, and she grows from all of it. And in many ways, she's the avatar, not he. 
of the national character. See, and I have a real issue with what he does to her. That's and interesting because I, I see you did you know he tortures yeah. her and and she grows from it and I'm like right. it seems dismissive of what he does to her. Yeah, no, I I, I understand that. I really I I, I get that uh, I should be more bothered. Rewatching by it. it, I mm-hmm. really found myself having a serious problem. Wow, with what he did to her, and I didn't. Yeah, I I don't know why I retreated to intellect so quickly on that. Yeah, because I mean, just wh- whether or not. Why he was doing it? I, I, I. Don't I'm not remember. an justify the means guy. No, I, yeah, <laughs> I don't remember if I mentioned this last episode mm-hmm. or not. I think I did. Mm-hmm. That he, in the book, mm-hmm. he's doing it to for to reach that epiphany and growth right. and whatever. Right. That is not what I saw in the film. Yeah, you and I have some disagreement about that. Yeah. Whereas I saw the timing of which was she could out him and ruin his plan, so he took her and needed to find out because. He kept asking her, right. you know, just tell him, just tell him, just you right, know, right. You know, pretending to be, you know, the interrogator. Yeah, absolutely. And and to me, I took that is in is she going to break? Is she going to give me up? That's kind of like Odysseus coming back to Penelope. You know, there are four lights. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that's okay. But here's the thing: he he doesn't grab her after she is uh, she tattles on him. No, he he grabs her after uh, the media guy gets beaten down. Right. And she sneaks out of his room, and he grabs her then. Right, but I'm trying to remember if when something happened mm-hmm. that for some reason he couldn't grab her when she was with the bishop. I think that they... Come yeah, at, he just got away. Yeah, um, he, he, he ran yeah. and couldn't take her at that time. I don't think it was a choice that he didn't take her. I don't think the situation allowed him to, whereas right. when she was at the TV presenter's place, right. he was able to infiltrate the police. And, mm-hmm. and every, when I originally saw the film, I didn't catch that it was him. Yeah. On a rewatch, I could see the, the, yeah. the burn scars in his eyes when he grabbed her. Yes. Um, but I still have issue with what he did and... The general discussion we had about mm-hmm. um, anarchy and the the need to do this horrible thing in order to make them see the light, mm-hmm. for lack of a better description, yeah, um, that kind of goes straight into an ends justify the means argument. Oh, it really does. I can do these horrific things, right? So you will come to my ideology, you know, and and, well, you, and, might and, and, he, and he you might not. And basically, straight up waterboards her. Yeah, he does. Yeah, oh, no. I'm sorry. Enhanced interrogation is what he does. Well, and I don't think that that's accidental, given that this came out in 2006. Right. You know, uh, I I think it's like when I don't understand modern art. It's not the art's problem. It's clearly me. That's the problem here. I think your take on it is far more reasonable and empathetic than mine was. Mm. Uh, and I I give you full credit on that because I for some reason I'm like, oh no, that's existentialism. It's fine. Um. Maybe because you're more focused on the, the end goal? I think it's because I, I look at movies with the philosopher's mm-hmm. mind sometimes. And to me, it was so... And I, I Small part of the bigger picture? Maybe. No, it's, it, here's what it is. I had a friend once who told me, he's like, the reason you don't like poetry, Damien, is because poetry is like an essay without the blanks filled in. I said, exactly. <laughs> I want the blanks filled in. He's like, yeah, that's it. And it was so clearly obvious to me. She's all alone. There's abandonment. Whatever choice she makes is going to be painful. Despair. Right? And uh, this is going to hurt. Anguish. Mm-hmm. That's literally like the template for what Jean-Paul Sartre did 
in the 1950s. What he said is what existentialism is. Now, people got into existentialism and started feeling sorry for themselves, but that's what he said. And he said, it does not matter. You still have to make a choice, and that choice is what tells us who you are. And to me, that's so fascinating mm-hmm. that I don't, that I, I, I look past the torture. It's like, well, yeah, that's the anguish part. I get it. Let's go on. That's, yeah, that, that's devoid of humanity. Right. I get it. And it's, it's me retreating to the intellect. Not entirely sure why, because very often the ends never justify the means for me. Right. And here. And, and this is by design completely. It's set up because, to make you uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. And, because, and I was totally fine and because with it. Because, you know, he used mm-hmm. the exact same tactics that the bad guys exactly. use. Exactly. Exactly, you know, and if and if the if the ends don't justify the means, if the means are re- reprehensible no matter what, right? Then he shouldn't use them either, right? I agree, I agree with you completely, yeah. and yet it didn't strike me at all. Interesting, yeah. And I just watched it recently too to yeah. research for this, right? So to me, I think is that the difference is between the book and the the movie is that the chaos that he employs in the movie is a means to an end it's not the means to the end he's not trying to bring about anarchism he's trying to tear down fascism he's trying to give humanity another chance it's no longer about the freedom and destruction necessary with anarchism which is used to destroy fascism it's about mass action peaceful protest and how we were all cowed into submission, and therefore we must all band together in protest and peaceful confrontation. I'd agree that's what the movie is. Yes. Not the book. Yes. More, and, but I would argue that that might not even have been intentional. Oh, I think it was 100% intentional, because he didn't send guns to everybody, he sent masks. And they all walk up on armed peoples. Right. I just, But again, I go back to choices made and cuts made when you transfer... Um, content from one medium to another mm-hmm. and I don't know if um, it was just more expeditious to write, do it, write it, do it that way for the film purposes or if it was an intentional we, or if the Wachowskis said we mm-hmm. want to send this message. They, they yeah. very well could have yeah. but I acknowledge that it could because you know, there's, there's a lot of films out there that we import meaning into them and it goes going back to the consuming content thing that if we see, get that meaning out of it then it has that meaning for us Right. but I don't know that I think it's entirely possible that they did not have that intent. I think they did, and here's why. Uh, there's a there's there's a couple reasons why. Number one, they did show a few people um, using the the mask to hide their face to commit violence. Right. right, right, and that was part of the montage. But by and large, the 250,000 people who stormed the government, right, the soldiers stood down and let them pass peaceably, right, and and you even had Finch saying what normally happens when people without guns, run into people with, with guns, guns right? right? So it's very clearly mass action, and um, everybody after that point removes their Guy Fawkes mask, and then we see that V is all of us. Disease cured, mass action. We fixed it. Yeah. Now in 2006, this is a couple years later, but there had been a million people in the streets in London. There had been hundreds of thousands of people in the streets in all kinds of cities in San, in, in San Francisco, in all kinds of cities in the United States. There had been people around the world protesting the invasion of Iraq. Mass peaceful action, though. And that is the antidote to increased fascism. Disease is cured when you have everybody come together. 
I would love for that to have been true, but, you know, and that's where I think Alan Moore is correct that this is a liberal ideology going against neocon stuff. Mm -hmm. This is not anarchism by any stretch, and it's not. It's a liberal fantasy that we can all stand together, and that would be enough. Right. We want it to be, and fuck, I want it to be, but I don't know that it is, and that's scary to me because that means that... yeah, you're gonna if, have to get violent. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say yeah. if that isn't the way that can do it. Yeah, what is? And yeah. here's the other reason why I think that this was their intent. Here is so in the in the comic book, Alan Moore yelled at England mm-hmm. with the the fireside chat. In the movie, the Wachowskis yell at America in the fireside chat. Here's what they say: Good evening, London. Allow me first to apologize for this interruption. I do, like many of you, appreciate the comforts of everyday routine, the security of the familiar, the tranquility of repetition. I enjoy them as much as any bloke. So just right there, he's sympathizing way more than the other dude. The other dude was chastising. Right, but I would question whether that was designed at a intended for an American audience specifically or just a, a different approach. I, I, well, I think it was an American-made movie made for an American audience. And I do think, yes, I think ultimately it is because we all have TV. We all are entertaining right, no, ourselves. And, you know, or are we yeah. seeing it that way because we are Americans? And we go, oh yeah, that's totally us. It's like identifying with the horoscope that, that is the same oh, for everybody. Okay. Yeah. You, know, you, you see yourself in what they're saying, right. so that's, that was aimed at me. Okay. And yeah, this was much more watered down, lowest yeah, common denominator. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But in the spirit of commemoration, whereupon important events of the past, usually associated with someone's death or the end of some awful bloody struggle, are celebrated with a nice holiday, I thought we could mark this November the 5th, a day that is sadly no longer remembered, by taking some time out of our daily lives to sit down and have a little chat. Again, no violence. Now, and and again, flipping my own argument about it not being specific to Americans, Mm -hmm. fireside chat. Yep. So very American. Yes. Yeah. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. I suspect even now orders are being shouted into telephones and men with guns will soon be on their way. Why? Because while the truncheon may be used in lieu of conversation, words will always retain their power. Words offer the means to meaning, and for those who will listen, the enunciation of truth. And the truth is, there's something terribly wrong with this country, isn't there? Cruelty and injustice, intolerance and oppression... And where once you had the freedom to object, to think and speak as you saw fit, you now have censors and systems of surveillance coercing your conformity and soliciting your submission. First off, by the way, I just, I love the amount of um, alliteration. Yeah, it's beautiful. That opening speech with all the Vs. Vs, Yeah, so much fun. Oh yeah, and the fact that it completely made sense, it wasn't just a a verbal trick, was great. Yeah. Yeah. uh, oh, how did this happen? Who's to blame? Well, certainly there are those who are more responsible than others, and they will be held accountable. Which I love that line. <laughs> but again, truth be told, if you're looking for the guilty, you need only look in, you need only look into a mirror. I know why you did it. I know you were afraid. Who wouldn't be? War, terror, disease. There were a myriad of problems which conspired to corrupt your reason and rob you of your common sense. Fear got the best of you, and in your panic, you turned to the now High Chancellor Adam Sutler. In the book, he was called Adam Susan. Uh, He promised you order. He promised you peace. And all he demanded in return was your silent, obedient consent. Last night, I sought to end that silence. Last night, I destroyed the old Bailey building uh, to remind this country of what it has forgotten. More than 400 years ago, a great citizen wished to embed the 5th of November forever in our memory. Okay, time out. Great citizen. Yeah, no. No, (laughs) like they did not do their research at all. The whole reason for, well, I'll talk about the mask later. Um, But 
his hope was to remind the world that fairness, justice, and freedom are more than words. They are perspectives. So if you've seen nothing, if the crimes of this government remain unknown to you, then I would suggest you allow the 5th of November to pass unmarked. But if you see what I see, if you feel as I feel, and if you would seek as I seek, then, ask yourself, then I ask you to stand beside me one year from tonight outside the gates of Parliament, and together we shall give them a 5th of November that shall never, ever be forgotten. Now at that time, so again, just very different speeches, mm-hmm. despite them having tonally very similar implications. Right. They're wildly different. One was anarchist, one was liberal. Mm-hmm. At the time, Natalie Portman's and Hugo Weaving's stars were on the rise. Right? So it made sense to cast the both of them. They'd both shown remarkable range in other things. But I don't give a shit. What I think is interesting is who they cast as Adam Sutler. John Hurt. Mm-hmm. John Hurt is... Uh, the fascist dictator in this movie, whose face is so enormous on the screen, it's overpowering, it's overwhelming the other characters and the audience. What's interesting there is that John Hurt played Winston Smith in 1984. Yep, exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, stunt casting. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you know, we're going to do a 180 and have him play the other guy. I loved it. It's like having Hulk Hogan be the bad guy, you know? A man who was crushed by the totalitarian government, right? Now he's the disembodied head avatar for it the parallel did not go unnoticed by movie critics by the way uh ebert said that he looked like the embodiment of big brother film itself very successful made 132 million in box office another 58 million in dvd sales none of those existed right (laughs) none of which more accepted hugo weaving who played v in the movie and discussed the overall disparity between the graphic novel and the movie he said quote alan moore was writing about something which happened some time ago it was a response to living in Thatcherite Britain. This is a response to the world in which we live today. So I think that the film and the graphic novel are two separate entities. I would agree. I would agree as well. And while the film was commercially successful, it was critiqued rather universally as not going far enough and being puerile in its approach. In The Atlantic, V for Vendetta's climactic destruction of the architecture is, is considered vapid. Quote, In detonating uh, Westminster, the Wachowskis and uh, McTeague go at once too far and not far enough. Too far in expecting us to applaud the senseless destruction of one of the historical cathedrals of democracy, and not far enough in hesitating to make their point by blowing up the White House or the Capitol Dome, the true targets of their juvenile political ire. This is the Atlantic. Juvenile political ire. Yeah. This is the Atlantic. It's a conservative magazine, Uh, which, by the way, the Atlantic is a conservative magazine. (laughs) Uh, It doesn't seem that way anymore because that's how far we've shifted. Their film is a bank shot against Bush, simultaneously radical and cowardly. In the end, it's not clear which characteristic is the more embarrassing. So they got dragged. Yeah. Uh, A major difference between the two, as you can see, is that the comic is set in Britain, 1997, post-nuclear war. There's a totalitarian ethnostate that's been legally elected to power. The main tension is between an anarchist shaking people up and the government up and giving a second option to fascism. These are done directly, not subtly in the comic. In the movie, it's 2020 in England. But really, the setting is less important and less specific. Uh, It is, however, a call out to the Patriot Act. Lots of cameras, as Moore said, right? Uh, And there is a not insignificant abundance of references to black bags. Right. Similar to the ones that they used at Abu Ghraib and Gitmo, Guantanamo Bay. Uh, in fact, several parallels are shown visually and usually in a montage kind of atmosphere between Guantanamo Bay and what the Norse Fire government, 
also legally elected, uh, set up. There's more of a call out in the movie against citizen complacency too, which is again a liberal thing. The anarchists are like, fuck it, we're going to blow it up ourselves. Right. Here we go. And then you have, to, you have to choose from the rubble. It will be your canvas. Right. He's saying, let's all do this together. Come right. On. And shame on you for not right. being more involved. But you know what? We still have a chance. Yeah. Right. Instead of like, no, it's, we're going to burn it all down and you have to build it. Right. It's less of an existential choice. It's more of a, a retraction. All of which is done through images. There's nothing really direct there. Now, sometimes, though, the impact of a film can be iconic, even if it's not critically acclaimed. And this brings me to the fox masks uh, that are used in the movie. Yeah, here's what David Lloyd said about the fox masks. Uh, the Guy Fox mask has now become a common brand and a convenient placard to use in protest against tyranny. And I'm happy with people using it. It seems quite unique, an icon of popular culture being used this way. V for Vendetta uh, and is... moved on to Anonymous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're... Yeah. It's been seen by many political groups as an allegory of oppression by the government. Libertarians and anarchists have used it to promote their beliefs. Moore thought, also thought that American audiences missed the mark with the mask. Quote, and also they're making way too much of this Guy Fox thing. <laughs> Guy Fox was not a freedom fighter. He was a religious fanatic. I was just using Guy Fox as a symbol without really any reference to the historical Guy Fox. It was the bonfire night Guy Fox that I was referencing with, at the, with uh, at the same time, easily available Guy Fawkes masks. Although, weirdly, we say we started doing V for Vendetta in 1980, something like that. Uh, up until that point, near every November, you'd be able to fi buy fireworks and you'd be able to buy Guy Fawkes masks at the shops. So it was just kind of, it's kind of right. like Michael Myers, uh, right. you know, just using, oh, but also I think that mask. He's right, you know, Americans got it wrong, but I think part of it was, it was something new. And mm -hmm. anything new, people jump on and, oh, what's this? And, yeah. and, and it's and, iconic. And take it and run. And, and yep. it's in, incredibly iconic. And mm -hmm. it wasn't a pervasive part of our culture, so we didn't have that context yeah. to look at it correctly, or yeah. accurately, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. And he... Definitely wasn't a hero, right? Moore says, I don't want to say he's the hero any more than I really want to say he's the villain. Oh, which reminds me, in the yeah. film, he made the comment uh, in the speech about a hero said, blah, 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 a hero did whatever. Does Moore refer to Fox as a hero in the book? I don't know. Okay. No. So that's they, that speech, they made yep. that for the film. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that's why you had that weird-ass prologue in the film, too. Of, right. Of the scene of him. Right. You know, and it's like, and some the, people need to know what a hero is. Like, that bitch wasn't a hero, no. you know? <laughs> Right. But he says, I don't want to say he's the hero any more than I really want to say he's the villain. He's a force. He says, it's funny with fascism or anarchy, yes, that they are the two poles of the politics, but neither of them are actually, strictly speaking, a political system. Fascism is a kind of weird mystical system, and anarchy is an attempt to move beyond the need to be politic, the need to manipulate large masses of people. So I tend to think V is pretty much an allegorical force, an idea given human form. And obviously I have a lot of sympathy with some of his basic ideas, but I think that killing people is wrong. Okay, let you're himself an out the back door. Yeah, but don't kill anybody. Right, and, you know? and your your whole film, your not film, your whole comic is about the I, destruction. I have to make you suffer. Yep. to yeah. get to the place that you should be. I think he's both sizing it there. You no, know, yeah, no, he's definitely giving himself an out so he doesn't look yeah. like a monster. Yeah, yeah. Now the mask itself did become an icon, and it was not the icon it set out to be, as so often is the case with icons. Anonymous, the Occupy movement, Project Chinology. Guy Fawkes himself was a regressive man, part of a larger conspiracy of assholes who wanted to blow up a legally and democratically for its time elected government because they didn't like that their religion wasn't supreme. Other groups mentioned uh, who adopted it. 
they were all about the opposite. Some adopted the anarchism that the comic promoted V is having. As the economy began to tank, the masks start showing up more and more where activists and hacktivists coalesced, especially in the Occupy Wall Street movement, as well as Arab Spring a few years after that. Uh, by this point, the Guy Fawkes image, specifically the one from V for Vendetta, uh, was seen as a signal of popular protest. So it's moved beyond meaning, and it's right. now just populism protesting. Right. It was used throughout the early 2010s internationally, getting made illegal in a number of countries. <laughs> Even Canada banned its presence in a riot or otherwise unruly mob action. So you can wear it, but if shit turns violent, you're in trouble now. All right. Uh, as recently as October 2019, the Hong Kong protesters started using them in protest against the government's anti-mask law. But the best one was about July of 2019, when nearly 100 anti-vaxxers went to the Comic-Con in San Diego wearing fox masks oh my God. to protest vaccines. They called themselves V for Vaccine. Uh, I don't have a lot to say about them. Well, here's what these <laughs> fuckwits said. Good evening, San Diego, and allow me to first apologize for this interruption. We need to discuss the state of ignorance in this nation across the globe. Well, points for presentation. Yeah. <laughs> Your government, scientifically and medical scientific and medical community, has failed you. They have failed to inform you of the very basic truths of vaccines. You mean that they work? Yeah. <laughs> They have exploited your fear and ignorance, and this has made it easy for them to strengthen vaccine mandates and eliminate exemptions that have been in place for decades. <laughs> These fucking people. Uh, See, at this point, Ed would be kicking them under the table. Right. This is the beginning of the end of your ignorance. Activists right now are flooding the area with easy-to-digest truths about vaccines. Armed with science so big and messages so short, a rapid glance and the information is absorbed. We shall... <laughs> Oh we, shall, we shall continue education to demonstration until every man, woman, and child has appropriate knowledge of vaccine program. Science By the way, so big, yeah. it can't be ignored. Really? Yeah. Yeah. By the way, uh, the anti-vaccine movement predates vaccines on this continent. Just so you know. Mm. It actually does by like three years. Your government, your media cannot stop our words of truth. Words will always retain their power. The power will enlighten society, giving them the ability to make informed decisions and the conviction to finally fight retain, and to retain their human rights. Also, quote, if we do not fight now, then there will be nothing left to fight for. And I think that uh, that is where everyone in this room, I pray you realize how important you are in this historic moment. We will never be stronger than we are right now. We will never I be hope. healthier yeah, <laughs> than we are right now. Our children are looking like this uh, generation of children. As we've said on the doctor's television show that this is the first generation of children that will not live to be as old as their parents. Are we going to stand? Are we going to sit down and take it? Or are we going to stand up and say, this is a historic moment that my forefathers, those from Jefferson all the way to Martin Luther King. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> the moments where people stood up now and said, and something inside of them said, I'm going to stand for freedom and I'm going to stand for it now. That is in our DNA. It is pumping through me. And I pray you feel it pumping through you because we must look back. Our grandchildren will look back and thank us for having stood up one more time and been the generation that said, we, the people of the United States of America, stood for freedom, stand for freedom. We will die for freedom today. And you know why you could stand? Because you had a polio vaccine. <laughs> you know why you're going to die? Because you didn't get your measles vaccine. Oh, my God. Cosplay is real, yo. 
And sometimes people take that shit way too seriously. Way too seriously. Like, way too seriously. A reporter said, quote, I like how they point to the doctor's television show as their their, yeah. their icon of, yeah. of reality. Yeah. Grifters. Dr. Oz said. Yeah, a grifter. <laughs> a guy who's been sued more times than I can count. Yeah. Here's what a reporter said. A disturbing number of them really do view themselves as harried freedom fighters defending their children against a totalitarian menace. This is especially worrisome given that I've been seeing more and more insinuations of violence, as in this post by anti-vaxxer Larry Cook. In it, there's a tweet of how a Glock works. These are the same folks who dressed up like Star Wars characters and tried the same shit at Disneyland, which is where an outbreak of measles originated from about four years ago. Quote, coupled with the not infrequent violent rhetoric of the anti-vaccine movement, seeing how much anti-vaxxers identify with rebels, heroes, and terrorists, fighting despotic regimes or even a dark lord, and how they act out those fantasies by cosplaying Star Wars characters and Star Wars li- uh, and a character like V worries me. And I don't think my concern is unreasonable. It's like a scientifically illiterate Westboro Baptist Church. Yeah, that's exactly it. Both right and left whack jobs are adopting this symbol for their own. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, the right and left whack jobs tend to coalesce right around the anti-vaccine movement. Hmm. And cryptocurrency. <laughs> because of course they are. Symbols are precisely the thing that V was striking out against to start with. Right. So why not miss the point that big? <laughs> well, they, they miss the validity of decades of scientific research. Why not miss the point of the film? Right. You know? <laughs> So, you know, looking back at both media in this current time, okay, so because I have the DVD and because I still watch DVDs and because I have the comic book Mm -hmm. and I'm living right now, they both mean something different now. Yeah. When V for Vendetta came out in a comic book form, it was a British comic written about a specifically British sensibility. Alan Moore and David Lloyd saw eventual anarchism as the anecdote to creeping fascism in the face of apathy. Right. When DC optioned it to a movie with Warner Brothers in 2006, it was a movie that was about the American War on Terror and the effects of militarism on a civilian society. By the way, it's a little bit, just a little bit before our smartphones, by the way. Where we all took the surveillance for ourselves to actually protect ourselves from the police state. Uh, the changing of words' meanings featured in much more heavily than it did the message of anarchism this time around. Okay? And that, that's important to me because you had torture being turned into, what was it, extraordinary rendition? Oh, no, um, enhanced interrogation. That too, yeah. yeah. Currently, the same change is a very important theme in the movie too, by the way, the change of language, as is the presence of camps. Mm-hmm. The anti-queer emphasis of the fascists in charge of the movie. And further, the comic book itself is coming back into vogue. Um, how to put this? Uh, the amount of energy that went into Let's Storm Area 51, They Can't Stop Us All. Which I argue was not a lot of energy. No, but it pissed me off. Because if you'd just gone a couple hundred miles south, you could have actually freed some kids who are now dead. <laughs> who didn't get vaccines, by right. the way. Right. According to writer Emily Asher Perrin on tour, who I got permission from to quote, she's rad. Okay. Follow her Twitter. 
Emily Asher Perrin, two R's in Perrin, on tour. She said, quote, V for Vendetta is a film that has managed to grow more poignant over time rather than less, which is an achievement in its own right. She wrote an article a little after the Orlando nightclub shooting in 2016, just ahead of the election. She pointed out a number of things that the film did right, specifically by taking away its specific Britishness and universalizing some of its overarching themes. Which we talked about. Right, yeah. which you know I love. Quote, director James McTeague was, a quick, was quick in interviews to point out that while the society they depicted had much in common with certain American institutions, they were meant to serve as analogs for anywhere with similar practices. He stated explicitly that while the audience might see Fox News in the Norse Fire Party news station BTN, it could easily be Sky News over in the UK or any other numbers or any num- other numbers of similarly like-minded venues. I would also point out that England just had an election where they swung way to the right. Overwhelmingly conservative, yeah. So more, more than even the conservatives thought. Yeah. And so you're 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 seeing uh, these predictions all come true, uh, essentially. She also points out how queer-centric and queer-friendly the film actually is, which in hindsight makes even more sense given who the Wachowski sibs are now. Right, right. The Wachowski script, I'm quoting her again, the Wachowski script focused even more on the struggle of the queer population under the Norse Fire Party, which was startling to see in a film like this even 10 years ago. And I didn't put that together that... Mm-hmm. Of, of all of the things to emphasize, that makes much more sense because that was a much more personal issue to them right. to put the focus on. And, you know, if something had to be cut, minorities mm-hmm. and other groups would be cut right. in, in, in order to focus more on that. Because um, I'm sure that they had to whittle it down for time and things yeah, like that. absolutely. And, yeah, that makes sense. I didn't th- put that two and two together. I would point out that they did include minorities in both of the scenes where uh, queer folk are getting... Uh, right, but, but but they're not. But yeah, it's not it's because montage. they're minorities. Right. right. Yeah. Or it might be double dipping. It could be. Yeah. Maybe. maybe yeah. And that's their way of and doing they just, it. Yeah. They just didn't specifically call it out. Yeah. 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 Possible. I. You know. Uh, yeah. Because the only <laughs> place you see people of color is in the camp who have been exterminated, or the bodies are getting thrown, or the gay the gay male couple uh, that gets stormed in on mm. uh, during uh, the monologue from uh, the woman who wrote the, the paper down. Oh, right, 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 right. right, right. Um, I would also point out that uh, it's interesting that the Wachowskis keep touching on themes of going through great pain and then awakening into a newer, freer self that no one recognized. Yeah, actually, you know what? Yeah. Yeah, very much, yeah. So, um, oh, yes. Uh, where did I... Sorry, the, the, the screen. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, which was startling to see in a film like this even 10 years ago and still is today, if we're being frank. To be fair, giving an audience a crash course in anarchy and how it should oppose fascism in a story where no one is a definitive hero, she says, would have been a tall order for a two-hour film. Yeah. Which yeah, is, which is what you talked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, to me, is what Weaving and Lloyd both got right that Moore got wrong, too. The movie had to stray from the original source material so that it would make sense. I was just going to say, yeah. yeah. If, if if you were slavish to the source material, mm-hmm. a lot of it would have been lost on a larger yeah. audience. Well, because the comic book had literally years to unfold. Mm-hmm. The movie had two hours to do it. Right. Get you into the world, take you through the world, and get the message across. Right. The comic book literally had years. Well, and also, it was 
pointed towards a very specific audience. Yes. So people who are already steeped in that mythology. Right. So there's, not little, mythology, there's a little bit culture. of a shorthand yeah. where they step yeah. in and they're, and they're already up to speed. Yeah. And you don't have to tell them as much. Yeah. And, you know, if again, if, if you do a, a faithful adaptation, mm-hmm. okay, there might be a smaller group of people that think it's awesome, yeah. but you'll lose a ton of your audience. Yeah. Sometimes to universalize the ideas behind the content, you have to do that right. in the first place. And even the existential crisis that V creates for Evie is less ambiguous in the movie. Yes. Okay, in the comic it was kind of ambiguous. Well, and it, it has to be. And it's less a problem now than it was in 2006. Less a problem how? Uh, well, we don't have time to be nice now. We don't have time to dither now. We have decisions to make about our national identity now. And, okay, and, and, and in that is... 2006, we had... A quote from 2006 or a quote from now? No, that's me analyzing. Uh, that's analyzing yeah. it. Okay, got I, it. I think now it is more dire. I still am not comfortable enough saying the ends justify the means. But right. I do understand the direness of what he did a lot more now than I did in 2006. So, And if we need a crucible to burn away the bullshit exterior to who we are so that we can live out our personal identity better, quicker the better. Because people are literally gunning for us. Quote, Evie is unable to live honestly, to achieve any amount of personal freedom, to break away from a painful past. The entire film is about how fear numbs us and how it turns us against one another, how it leads to despair and self-enslavement. End quote. I would also point out that it also leads to um, not just turning against one another, but turning away from each other. Okay. That's someone else who's walking down the street bummer for them should have followed the law so easy to do oh was, those are kids they shouldn't have broken the law when they came across the border eh, what are you gonna do that the wachowski sibs are trans folk does not escape the author's notice nor does it go without analysis vis-a-vis the film quote the possibility of trans themes in v for vendetta are born out of uh, born out clearly in evs and v's respective transformations for evie a harrowing physical ordeal where she is repeatedly told that she is insignificant and alone, leads to an elevation of consciousness. She comes out the other side a completely different person, later telling V that she ran into an old co-worker who looked her in the eye and couldn't recognize her. On V's side, she says, when Evie tries to remove his mask, he tells her that the flesh underneath the mask is not me. The body that he possesses is not truly him. Right. While this speaks to V's desire to move beyond mortal man and embody an idea very much what's being looped into there. Quote, It is also true that his body is something that was taken from him, brutalized and used by the people at Lark Hill. Having had his physical form reduced to the status of experiment, V no longer identifies with his body. More importantly, once he expresses this, Evie never attempts to remove his mask again, respecting his right to appear as he wishes to be seen. Now keep in mind, she wrote this piece in the aftermath of the Orlando nightclub shooting. And at that time, the most alarming thing that Donald Trump uh, about Donald Trump wasn't that he'd won the presidency, but that he was actively campaigning based on hate. Quote, I think about the candidate for president who used Orlando as a reason to say, I told you so, to turn us against each other, to feel more powerful, to empower others who feel the same way. And I think about this film and, that, and the erasure of the victims at Lark Hill locked up for any difference other, that made them a threat to the state. Too foreign, too brown, too opinionated, too queer. I remember Evie's parents were taken away to a camp for... Being political. Yeah. yeah. Quote, 
Then I think about the fact that my partner was followed down the street a few days after the shooting by a man who was shouting about evil lesbians and how ungodly people should burn in fires. I think about the rainbow wristband my partner bought in solidarity but decided not to wear because there are times when it's better to be safe than to stand tall and make yourself a target. She goes on. And I think about the fact that this film is for Americans and for everyone and the fact that it still didn't contain the themes of the original graphic novel and I dare you to tell me that it doesn't matter today, that we don't need it, that we shouldn't remember it and learn from it. We need these reminders at this exact moment in time. Now, this was 2016 before the president had become the president. Mm -hmm. Continues. Do not let your leaders make you afraid of your neighbors. Do not be complacent in the demonization of others through inaction. Do not let your fear of other, of the past, of being seen, dictate your actions. Find your voice. Act on behalf of those with less power than you. Fight. And above all, love. Love your neighbors and strangers and people who are different from you in every conceivable way. Love art and mystery and ideas. Remember that that is the only true triumphant response to hate. End quote. For her, V for Vendetta in 2016 was, quote, a visceral reminder of my own revelation all wrapped up in a tale about a man wearing a Guy Fawkes mask who wanted a government to be afraid of their people, who wanted revenge on anyone who would dare hurt others for being different. A tale of a woman who was reborn with a new capacity for love and a lack of fear. Now that's just three years ago. Now we can add on to that. Kids are being kept in camps. You can add on to that the constant gaslighting of over, over formally agreed upon definitions. Add on to that the Muslim ban. Add on to that the so all sorts of totalitarian tendencies. They're floating the idea of a third term now. And suddenly, and that, by the way, that floating the idea of a third term, he did that two years ago. And they're doing that again. And suddenly, everything that Moore was warning us against, everything that he was writing about in that very British sensibility, in that very British story, going anarchism versus fascism, everything he's warning about with fascism is becoming much more prescient. So to me, it was overblown. He was hyper-reactive to Thatcherism. I don't know that he was wrong, because here we are. And to me... The movie in 2006 was way watered down from what he did, and I'm really glad that it was because it's much more universal, mm -hmm. and it warned us against what we were becoming. And now you watch it, and now you read it, and it's, it's telling you what happened. It's a farmer's almanac. <laughs> so finally, here's a fun fact about the Guy Fox masks. They're trademarked by Warner Brothers. <laughs> which is owned by Time Warner. Right. One of the largest media conglomerates in the world. Very powerful. Every single mask sold means a licensing fee going to Warner. Best comedy. Originally, it was adopted by Anonymous to protect their identities to protest the Church of Scientology, which, good on them. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm... But it morphed from there. Quote, it had a chilling effect. There were literally thousands of people standing silently in front of the Church of Scientology wearing the same Guy Fawkes mask, Ms. Coleman said. The photos and videos that appeared in the news from the protests cemented the mask as a symbol of Anonymous. Quote, with the help of Anonymous, the mask has become one of the most popular disguises and in a small way has added to the $28 billion reserve in revenue, I'm sorry, $28 billion in revenue Time Warner accumulated last year. <laughs> it is the top-selling mask on Amazon.com. 
It's such a hot item that the people selling it have only recently learned what its popularity stems from. Quote, we sell over 100,000 of these masks a year, and it's by far the, the best-selling mask that we sell, said Howard Beige, executive VP of the Ruby's Co- Costume Company, a New York costume company that produces the mask. Ruby's. It's big in the costuming community. Yeah. Uh, in comparison, we usually only sell about 5,000 or so of our other masks. Wow. The Vendetta mask, which sells for about $6 at many retailers, is made in Mexico or in China, Mr. Beige said. Not surprising. So I just, I really like that. Yeah, though that's yeah, drips of irony. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Damn the man. Here's your licensing fee. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even like we'll sell them the ropes to hang themselves with. You know, right. it's, it's not even that. Wow. So, yeah, that's... Uh, Interesting. Yeah. So uh, first, you know, I would just like to um, thank, um, well, thank you for being here. To, to start with uh, for this, but I also really want to just actually thank Emily Asher Perrin for her uh, enthusiastic support of me getting to use her, her yeah. quotes because to me that really drove home uh, the modernity of this movie and why, despite it being overblown in 1983, it's absolutely applicable now. And, and whether you think that society is going that direction or not, I mean, right. that theme... That message is something to always, you know, always keep an eye out. Yep. Always watch these things. Vigilance. You know, depending, you know, whether you, how far along that path you think we are or are not. Right. You know, it's still worth paying attention to. Yeah. yeah. So. But no, thank you for having me. This absolutely. Good. What have you gleaned? What have I gleaned? <laughs> I've gleaned that uh, you and I are different people. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Fair. Um, but uh, no, I... To be serious for a second, sure. One thing that I do appreciate from being here is, mm-hmm. for a while, I I used to really enjoy conversations like this, mm-hmm. and in recent times, I've stopped having them mm. because they go from zero to worse than Hitler very quickly. <laughs> yeah, and there's no, there was no intellectual joy in having the conversation. Because, I can see that because yeah. everybody runs to their their um, mic drop meme of choice. Oh yeah, and just wants to get in the shot of oh I'm badass I took that guy down. Yeah. Instead of you know why do you think what you think and that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's even an intellectual because I I always try to convert people. I'm a proselytizer. Mm-hmm. I'm a propagandist. I'm fine with that. <laughs> Propaganda is not inherently bad. Oh, no, it's, no. Yeah, yeah. It's a drundive of obligation in Latin, actually. It's that which should be pushed forward. Um, but uh, what do you call it? Um, there's an intellectual honesty to my proselytizing. I, I'm not looking You don't to pretend points. to be something you're not. You right. Yeah. And I don't try to score points. No. Right. Yeah, For the, me, your goal I is want, not to win. Right. My goal is to get you to think that, that you, the same way I do. Not right. that I'm right, but to think the same way I do. <laughs> But, you know, and it, it's not, it's, and it's because I genuinely believe that it's a good way to think. It's not like, hey, look right. look who I scored, you know? Yeah. Right. So, yeah, yeah. I don't want to dunk on people. Well, yeah. And so, and so, so yeah, so from that standpoint, I, I enjoyed this to be able to have a conversation good. without without it getting to be, you know, I mean, because there's people that I, that I know well that I might even be related to that I, mm. I, I don't have conversations, you know, with. Yeah. No, I, I have the same, uh, and they might be for opposite reasons. 
Uh, <laughs> but they might also loop around and be for the same reasons with other relatives. Right. But yeah, I so, absolutely. So yeah, no, this has been great. Good. Well, uh, fun little thing at the end. Alan Moore recently voted for the Labor Party. Mm-hmm. And he said, quote, I'm an anarchist. But the reason that I will be voting in labor in this election is that I am convinced that if we have another four years of these monstrous, rapacious Tories, we may not have another meaningful vote upon anything. Who won? The conservatives. Yeah, the Tories. But it's, fu- it's funny that... Um, Even Alan Moore voted. And, and, and he, he did what so many people mm-hmm. in this country... Should have done. Uh, well, no, no. Oh. <laughs> vilify people for he mm-hmm. chose the lesser of two evils mm-hmm. and over here mm-hmm. people that argue for certain candidates yeah. as um, more bankable more winnable right. better choices get shredded by members of their own party that's what I was talking about earlier for you know they no, forgot. yeah it, and if, if you you know I'm gonna die on that hill and that's great but if you plant right. Just you dying, <laughs> but, but also if you yeah. plant, if you plant your flag, you know I believe way out here, mm-hmm. then fine you'll lose with your integrity, but mm-hmm. you'll still lose. Right. Or would you like to plant your flag a little closer and then drag us that way you know, after this election? A, after the fact, fight for whatever. Yeah. That you have a better chance of getting something out of. And that's the thing. Whose shoulders do you want to jump from? Right. How and far to the right? How far to the left do you want to be? In you know, in, yeah. a, in another life, I was insurance an insurance claims adjuster, mm-hmm. and I had to negotiate settlements with attorneys. Mm-hmm. And I would always tell them, you know, in my mind, if we both walk away feeling like we both got a little screwed, mm-hmm. it was probably a, a some a pretty fair, mm. you know, settlement. Um, because I don't, I truly don't believe that one side or the other will ever get a hundred percent of what they want. Because right. that's not the the system we have, thankfully. Right. And I think that, like you said, if, if the guy that is more on your side mm-hmm. but not exactly what you want yeah. is the guy that you vote for, yeah. and say, then afterwards, fight for what you want mm-hmm. and see what you can get. But there's a fascist in the room. Get rid of that. Well, yeah, yeah. And that's, then, that's a place that's, to start. Yeah, yeah and, that, and that was, like I said yeah. earlier on, was that like, like the, the left gets into that purity test thing. Right, and, and, and the infighting. And, right, and it's yeah. like, hey, you, you forgot. And it's that you're too too focused on winning the which argument. Su- which surprises me that yeah. if, if there's any other time in history mm-hmm. that there should be a unifying factor you to think... one side of the political spectrum, mm-hmm. you would think it would be now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like, you know, I want to cut off my own nose to spite my own face. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah. But so Anyway. Well, all that from a comic book. Yeah. Who would have thought? Speaking of comic books. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, I am working on a comic book called The Republic. It is a post-apocalyptic story that, um, as I described it last episode, I likened to uh, Game of Thrones meets Walking Dead, but with no dragons and no zombies, meaning I am a a fan of uh, the human element in Mm -hmm. those stories and how they react to the... um, the safety net of civilization being pulled out from under you and, and how people live on from that. So uh, it is in a process of being worked on. And uh, as we said before, in a perfect world, I hope that I can find a publisher and maybe get it out by the end of the year if things go well. All right. So publishers, uh, I know you're listening. Uh, his name is Tim Watts, and it's called The Republic. And, and you can email me at tim at fullcourtstudios.com. 
There you go. Do you have a Twitter presence at all or no? Um, I have it set up, um, but it is not active at the moment because we're so early in the process sure. that we haven't started sending that stuff out yet. Oh, okay. Uh, if you want, you can put that here too. Okay. It's okay if you don't. So, uh, no? Okay. Uh, you can find us at uh, Geek History Time uh, on the Twitter. You can find uh, Ed at E.H. Blaylock on the Twitter. You can find myself at Duh Harmony on the Twitter. Uh, and we're actively recruiting and looking for sponsors. So if uh, you want to sponsor us, um, that would be much appreciated. You've noticed that these last two have been uh, without uh, commercial break, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so please give us a commercial break because I'd like to feed my kids meat again. So anyway, uh, so for uh, Geek History of Time, uh, for uh, the absent Ed Blaylock, and for our guest Tim Watts, uh, I'm Damien Harmony. And uh, remember, remember, this isn't November. <laughs>